We are in the book of Philippians, all right? So we are studying Philippians because one of the primary themes in Philippians is partnership. They are partnering in the gospel. Paul has taken the gospel to Philippi. He's shared Jesus, and we've seen incredible conversions that take place in Philippi, and this new church has started here. And what we find in the letter of Philippians is that Philippians has been one of Paul's primary supporters throughout his entire ministry. I mean, they're the, they're the, at one point, they're the only people that were giving to Paul financially as he's taking the gospel literally to the ends of the earth. There is this deep affection and love that they have for one another, all centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we are kicking off our church, we want to do a series where we're thinking about doing partnership around the gospel together. We want to be a church that takes the gospel out to our community, but also gets the gospel deep down inside of us. And so if that's going to be the case, there's no better book for us to start off and looking at than the book of Philippians, where it's talking about this type of partnership that's around the gospel of Jesus. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We have a hardback copy in the seat back in front of you. We'll want to grab that. We're also going to have the words up here on the screen. I'll read this for us, I'll pray, and then we'll begin to dive in. So Philippians 1, chapter, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, says this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we open up your word, that you would come and you would speak to us through your word. You... Their Bible says that it's living and active. And I pray that that would be the experience that we have here and now. 
that as we open up your scriptures, that you'd reveal yourself to us, that we would sense you here with us, and God, that you would speak tangibly to us. We need you, God. We need to hear from you, from your word. And so would you come and would you speak intimately into our life here and now? We ask these things in the name of Jesus who can do these things that we ask and pray. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the most fascinating people, I think, in the early modern era, this is like the 16th, 7th, 17th century, is Leonardo da Vinci, all right? Everybody knows Leonardo da Vinci, and obviously he has to be this really interesting person if, because he has a Ninja Turtle named after him, right? If you have a Ninja Turtle named after you, you have to be a pretty interesting person. So he's obviously fascinating for all the things that we know. So he's obviously an esteemed painter. He painted Mona Lisa. He painted The Last Supper. He made a lot of inventions. So he, even before they could even be used, he came up with the concept for a parachute and scuba gear. He was just fascinated by all these different things that the human being could go and do. He also had these massive scientific discoveries. So he's the one that figured out how the heart valve works. So he's really into anatomy. He's also the one that dissected the brain to figure out how it all works. So he's fascinating for all these reasons. But I think the reason that I'm most intrigued by him is because he's a little quirky. Like if you look at the things that he kind of did, you look at him, you're like, Da Vinci, you're a little weird, and I kind of like you for it, right? He's got that weird, cool quirkiness to him. So, for instance, here's one of the quirky things, all right? Da Vinci wrote backwards. So, we write right to left, or left to right. He wrote right to left. So, the idea of, like, mirror writing came from Leonardo da Vinci, all right? So, if you have looked at an ambulance, see how ambulance is spelled backwards, this came from Leonardo da Vinci. He's the one that invented this whole mirror writing thing. You literally needed a mirror to hold up to his notes to be able to read what he was writing, all right? Now, he never stated why he did this, so there's a lot of speculation about why he would write backwards, all right? So you have from the most simple reason that he's a left-handed writer. So he could have wrote that way so that he didn't get ink stains all over his hands as he was writing. Then you have like the far end of the spectrum where it's like conspiracy theorists that he wrote this way so people couldn't interpret his ideas and no one would try to steal his ideas. And then there's sort of like this middle ground that I think is like really compelling to me. The middle ground is that he wrote this way because he wanted you to stop and think about the things that he was writing down on paper. He wanted you to think and reflect and to appreciate the thoughts and ideas that he was putting down onto note. Well, the passage we're looking at today has this sort of similar effect to us. What Paul relates to us in our passage this evening, things happening in his life and the mission of God, these things seem backwards, all right? And it should make us pause and reflect and consider what God is trying to communicate to us in these things that seem and appear so backwards. So here's what I want us to do tonight as we're wrestling with this passage. I just want to focus on two things in this passage that seem backwards, all right? They seem backwards in relation to life lived in this world as well as the advancement of God's mission. We'll take a look at these things and then we'll talk about them and then we'll conclude, all right? So 
The first thing that seems backward is found in verses 12 through 13. So let me read it again, refresh our minds, and then we'll dive in, all right? So here's what it says. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. All right, so here, here's the first thing that seems backwards. It's that Paul is in prison. This seems backwards that Paul, being a missional leader of Christianity, this new movement is behind bars. He's in chains. If you're wanting to see a new movement spread forward, you're not looking for the primary missional strategist to be sitting in chains behind a prison door. That's not like the idea that you and I would conceive if you're wanting to see this mission move forward literally to the ends of the earth. I mean, the primary opposition to Christianity is like this sect of Jewish people called the Judaizers, and then Rome, which is the massive empire, they both think that they have Paul right where they want him. He's in prison, he's in chains, he's locked up behind doors. The, Judea the Judaizers, the small sect that hated Christianity, they're the ones that actually advocated for him being thrown into prison. And then you have the Romans who considered anybody that followed someone other than Caesar as king, as God, was an act of treason. And now they've got the main evangelists of this new movement locked up behind bars seems backwards. I mean, consider yourself, put yourself in the Philippians' shoes at this point in time. Paul visits Philippi and shares the good news of Jesus with them. We see these crazy conversions that take place. He shares the great commission with them that they're to go and make disciples of all nations. And Paul is working to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but now he's in prison. The Philippians that he's come and he's proclaimed this great news to, the idea that this gospel is supposed to go to the ends of the earth, this person that they built such a close partnership and friendship with, now he resides behind closed doors. So you would have to imagine, like, they're just like, God, what in the world are you doing? What is happening here? Why, why are you letting this happen? Why would you allow Paul to be thrown into prison? Why would you allow him to be in shackles? It seems backwards. But here's, here's the thing. Paul says the gospel is advancing further because he's in prison. That's why this feels so backwards. Not only because the main missional strategist of the Christian movement is locked up but that the gospel continues to advance even further with a primary evangelist behind those closed doors. In verse 13, Paul tells us that the entire imperial guard has heard the gospel. That's roughly 9,000 soldiers, all because Paul is in prison. He then tells us that others have started sharing the gospel because of his imprisonment. That's what we see in verse 14. He says, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So some of these have entirely pure motives, according to Paul, like they truly, genuinely just want to see the gospel of Jesus get out to people. But then he also says there's ulterior motives for some of these other people. 
that they want, they're actually going and they're preaching the gospel, but they're preaching the gospel because they want to promote themselves. They view this as their time to shine. The Apostle Paul, he's locked up. He can't be the one that people call on to come and share this gospel of Jesus with them. So this is their opportunity to finally seize the day. They're promoting themselves, not just the gospel, but look what Paul says here about this in verse 18. What does it matter? What does it matter to me that other people, even if they have ulterior motives, only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. See, that the gospel is getting out further with Paul in chains seems entirely backwards. And here's what I think what God is trying to do. I think he's trying to slow us down with this backwardness of the advancement of his mission to show us something. And here's the thing I think he's trying to show us. His power. His power. You see, the strength of a mission is not measured in its strength, but in its weakness. You hear that? So if you want to know how strong a movement really is, you don't measure its strength, how many horses it has, how many soldiers it has, what's the type of battalion that you have, what's all the armory that you've got, what's all the supply of resources that you have that's going towards this. You don't measure it whenever it's at its height. You measure it when it's at its weakness when it feels most vulnerable or whenever it's being threatened. We find here that the gospel, even in this circumstance, is advancing with the chief missionary in closed doors. He's in prison. See, one of the most dominant empires the world has ever seen cannot contain the advancement of Christianity at this point in time. In fact, when it seems like the movement is backed up into a corner, we find that it's only advancing even stronger at that point in time. Like that's how powerful God is. That even whenever it seems to be weak, when it seems to be vulnerable, when it seems there's a huge threat that this thing's gonna die out because the person that's taken it to the ends of the earth, they feel like they have it in the right spot. All those that are opposing the gospel, but then Paul shares with us, no, 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 no. This thing is moving forward even without me. That's when you see how powerful God is. Look, you can look throughout all of the Bible and you can find many examples of God's strength. I mean, you go to the very beginning of the Bible, you have the creation account. You have out of the void of nothing, God creates everything with literally just speaking words. That's how powerful God is. Then you have the flood, right? God deconstructs everything. And then he preserves all of the world, all of the animals, all of humanity with a boat. And then repopulates the whole entire world again. Like that's the strength of God. Then you have even the people of God, Israel. These, this, what the Bible tells us is larger than anybody could have imagined, more advanced or more expansive than the stars in the sky. And it starts with a guy that did not matter to anybody, which was Abraham. One person. I mean, you can look at wars, you can look at healings, you can look at people being raised from the dead. The list goes on. So many examples of God's power and strength, but we get the measure of God's strength in passages like this when it seems like he's weak, he's vulnerable, and he's threatened. Yet, 
the mission of God advances all the more. You see the power of God on display in passages like this. Now, this continues today, all right? God moving forward, advancing the gospel in places of weakness. This is an example of that. Any church that's just starting from the grassroots, getting up off of the ground, this is God advancing and showing his power through the advancement of his mission. Like, if you're in this room, you're, you're a part of it right now. I, I, was on, I was online today, and I saw a pastor who planted literally 14 years ago. And he, here's what he said. Look, he was, they had 30 baptisms that were happening in his church today. And he shared that that's more people than what they started out with their team when they first launched their church. 14 years later, they now have 30 people in one day being baptized. All because from the weakness of a small group of people starting a church, loving the gospel, taking it out to their city, loving on their city, you see this movement of God's power that rises up amongst them. And there's 30 people's lives who've been changed for all eternity that are taking place today because of this advancement of the gospel, this exemplification of God's power. These passages show us how powerful God is and we get to participate in it. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, it seems backwards. It seems backwards that this is the way that God's mission moves forward, but he's slowing you down so that you can take a deep breath, you can consider what he's doing, you can see truly how powerful our God is. So that's the first one. The second backwards thing that we see in this passage is in verse 21. It's Paul's statement. It's a really well-known statement, one that we've probably heard, probably some of you have even memorized, all right? So here, here it is. It says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. All right, so here's what this little verse means. Let's break it up into two halves, all right? So the first is this, to live is Christ. This means a few things, all right? It means joy. The, the relationship that Paul enjoys most in all of this world, the place that he finds the most enjoyment is his relationship with Jesus. So he says, for me to live is Christ. It means like I enjoy this life because of what Jesus has done for me. What Jesus has done has made every moment of my life joy-filled. It also means work. So Paul has been set aside for taking this news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so he says, this is my occupation. This is what my whole life revolves around, is taking Jesus to people. And, but at the, at, at the, not, like, not even the least bit is this, that it also means service. It means service. You see, Philippians 2 really dives into this, so I'm gonna save some of this for a couple of weeks from now, but let me just say this. Paul is enamored with how Jesus loved people. Like, overwhelmed by how Jesus loved people. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus left everything for us. He emptied himself of all his riches and his heavenly glory and, look, became a servant in this life. And Paul didn't see Jesus' love solely as like this gen from a general perspective. No, he saw it personally. Like Paul had heard stories about Jesus and what he had done for other people and how he loved other people. But 
he also experienced it personally. See, on the road to Damascus, as he's going, his life was completely bent the other direction against Jesus rather than going with Jesus and for Jesus. And on this road to Damascus, God divinely intervenes and interrupts his life. He blinds Paul. Paul goes to Damascus. There's this other pastor that's there that prays over him, heals him of his blindness, and Paul's life is forever changed. He gets to hear the words and voice of Jesus. Jesus appears to him. So this is not just like a general perspective. Yeah, God loves people. Yeah, he, I've heard stories about how he does this. No, he's saying, I've felt this. I've experienced this. This has happened. It's taken place in my own life. And being profoundly moved by Christ's love for him, Paul reorients his life in service to others. That's why you see him write in another letter, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. See, this is completely backwards from the way that our world works and the way that we often view our life. Our tendency is towards self and not service in this life. We see this from the earliest stages of life, all right? So I have four little ones. I have four little boys. We've taught a lot of words in our homes. What's the one word that I've not had to teach one of our kids? It's the word mine. You don't have to teach a kid what, how to learn to say the word mine. Like, it's just intrinsic inside of us. And this doesn't change as we get older. Our gravitational pull is still towards ourselves. We just get a little bit better at masking it, you know what I'm saying? Like we get a little bit better at masking that we are always thinking about ourselves, right? I mean, in fact, you can argue that we live in a time that's probably one of the most challenging times to take the focus off of ourselves with things like social media. Social media has become a platform for self-indulgence more than it has what it was originally intended for, and that's creating community with people that you can connect with literally all over the world. I mean, algorithms have literally been created for us to addict us to projecting our life online and then coming back to see how much attention we're getting. People have literally done the science in order to get us addicted to these platforms for us to project our life and then to come back and continue to try to see how much attention we are getting. I heard on a podcast recently some pastors that were sharing this example from Groucho Marx. Anybody remember the, the comedian Groucho Marx? He's the guy that has the big mustache, big nose, and the glasses, the ones that you can literally go buy. This was created from that guy. So he's an old, old comedian. And so there's this bit that he does where these two guys, they're two guys that are kind of meeting up, they're talking, and so they sit down. And one guy, one guy sits and he just starts sharing about himself. And so he's, he says, here's one thing about me. And then he shares a little bit about that. And then he comes back around, here's another thing about me. And so he starts sharing with that. Oh, I, I almost forgot. Here's another thing that I need to share with you about things that have been going on in my life. And so he, he shares all these things. And then he sort of have this moment of clarity. And he's like, oh my gosh, I've been talking about myself this entire time. I'm so sorry. I haven't even let you speak. Let's talk about you for a moment. What do you think about me? Like, this is our tendency in this life. It's not service, but it's self. But it's not so for Paul, because the love of Christ has divinely intervened in his life. He's been so 
fascinated. He's been overcome by this love of Christ that now he takes the posture that Jesus himself lived with. He's not thinking about himself. He actually lives a life of service. That's what to live as Christ means for Paul. Not for me, but for you. This life isn't about me anymore. I live it the way that Christ now lived it. That's why he says, imitate me. Follow me. Do what I do. Say what I say. Follow me as I imitate Jesus myself. To live is Christ. It's backwards. It's backwards. It's not the way that we think. But that's not the concluding statement. He, he continues to go, for me to live is Christ. And then look at this, to die is gain. This too is entirely backwards from the way that we think and we work and we live in this life. What does Paul mean to die is gain? Like what does he gain? He gains home. You see, this world says to die is to lose home. But Paul says, no, 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 when I die, I gain home. You see, to Paul, death means going to where Jesus is. And so this is where he has invested his life now, not this earthly place, but where Jesus is. So you see, Paul hasn't invested his time, his life, his resources into material things, but immaterial things. And so Jesus is his primary relationship, and Paul has made what Jesus values his highest priority in life. You see, at one time, Paul was like us. He, he was ambitious, and he worked to climb the the ladder of influence in his day and age. He wanted to be prestigious. He wanted to be at the top of the ladder within the Jewish culture. He was captivated with what others thought of him, who, who he was and where he came from really mattered to Paul. You can see this resume that he puts in Philippians chapter three with like all the accolades about who he was and what he had done. This stuff mattered to him at one point. He was a Pharisee and Jesus tells us that these people were infatuated with money. And since Paul was one of those himself, it's likely that was also a challenge in his life. But look, Christ changes his life. He says this later in the letter, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's backwards. We don't view death this way, but Paul says, if I die, I go to be with Jesus, I gain home. So here's what I think God is trying to do. He's trying to slow us down here, and here's the thing that I think he's trying to show us. That life with Christ means genuine freedom. A free life, not just in the future, but presently. All right, so imagine you are the one opposing Paul here, right? You, you have him in prison, you think you have him right where you want him, and then you get this verse, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They're probably thinking, okay, let's just get rid of him then. Let's, let's just put him to death. We'll get rid of him. Paul says, to die is gain. I get to go where I wanted to go the whole entire time. And so they're like, okay, well, let's, let's keep him alive. We'll just leave him in prison. And then what does Paul says? To me, for me to live is Christ. For me is to see the gospel advance. For me to live, it means that I'm orienting my life towards other people for me to live, it means that I'm pursuing love in this world. I'm exemplifying the most deep love that I've ever experienced in this life, and that's from Jesus himself. So you can't touch the guy. You try to knock him off, and he's like, I get to go home. 
You keep them alive, he's like, the gospel's gonna advance. There's nobody that's lived a more free life besides Jesus himself than Paul. He says, I, I'm free. You may think, well, yeah, but you're going and serving people, so you're, you're indebting. He says, no, 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 I'm not indebted to anybody. In fact, I'm not above serving anybody in any way, shape, or form. Like, this is my life now. I, I choose to do this. I'm not obligated to people. I'm actually so free that it doesn't matter what people think of me. I can go and do the least thing in this world. It doesn't matter. I get to serve people in that fashion because I'm so free. And look, every single one of us want this. We're all looking for relationships that can give us this type of freedom, this type of acceptance where we can be exactly who we want to be, whether it's your parents, whether it's your peers, or whether it's your partner. We're all looking for these type of relationships where we can be so fully accepted that we can be exactly who we are and live entirely free. And look, what Paul is saying is God is slowing you down with this backward statement to show you and me what we really want in this life, and that's freedom that comes from complete acceptance. And look, Paul is saying, I found it. I found it. And it's in Jesus and Jesus alone. There's no other place. He's made me completely free. So look, we've looked at how the mission of God seems backwards. We've looked at how the Christian life seems backwards. Now, the real question is like, okay, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Well, here's two sort of applications for us from this passage, right? The first one is this. Consider Christ's love. Consider Christ's love. All right, Galatians 5.1 says this. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, it wasn't Paul's determination that led him to this profound freedom. It wasn't a thick skin with what other people thought about him. It wasn't even a uniquely generous spirit that Paul had that made him live so free. No, it was Christ's love that set him free. That's what he's saying in Galatians chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. This is what all of God's work has been leading up to so that you and I can live completely free. So look, don't settle for a life of bondage. Like a life bent on proving yourself by keeping rules is not a free life. A life enslaved to others' perception of you where you're trying to consistently prove yourself to other people, that's not a free life. A life driven by things that you cannot keep where you're trying to hoard and you're trying to gain and you're trying to climb the corporate ladder so you have all the finances to buy all the things that you want. That's not a free life. It's only found, this free life is only found in Jesus. And it changed Paul's life. And look, it can change your life too. So consider Christ's love, it will change your life and it will give you the ultimate freedom that you're looking for in this life because you're completely accepted. The second one is this, share your story. So oftentimes we wonder what we can possibly do for God. Like what can little old me do for God? And so we wrestle with questions like, what good can I do for Christ? Or, how much power can I muster for Jesus? 
These are the wrong questions. See, the real question we should be wrestling with is what good can Christ do for the world through an unworthy person like me? Or how much power can Jesus show through my weakness? See, this is God's pattern, that he demonstrates his power through weakness. And the Bible tells us that God has chosen to display his power, look, through you and me. That's what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, now we have this, speaking of God's power, treasure in clay jars. That's our weak, frail, fragile bodies. So that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. And how does he do this? By sharing the gospel through our stories with other people. This is what Paul did. Look, if you look through all, throughout all of the book of Acts, whenever Paul's traveling around and he's going to different places, what is Paul doing? He's sharing a story. There's multiple accounts where he's standing up in front of people and he's saying, this is what my life was before Jesus. And then on the road to Damascus, God divinely interrupts. I get blinded by this incredible light. I hear the voice of God on my life. And then Ananias, he comes and he heals me. And my life is forever changed. Now it's all centered on Jesus. I'm taking the gospel for, this is what Paul does. He simply goes in and he shares his story with people. This story that has been divinely interrupted, this life of transformation, this is what Paul does. He says, this is who Jesus is. He impacts it for them in the Bible. He shares his story. And look, people are changed. People give their life to Jesus. And it happens because God exemplifies his power through weak people like you and me. And he puts his power on display. He literally changes people's lives for all eternity. So look, do you want to witness the power that was on display in the first part of this passage? Then go share your story. Share with people what God has done in your life. Look, it doesn't have to be rocket science. It can be if you are one of the people that moved here to help start this church. Every single conversation I talk with somebody, it's literally, hey, I've lived here for a year. Oh, what brought you here? We're starting a new church. And then boom, you get to share your story. It, it, it can even be, hey, what did you do this last weekend? Oh, I went to this like first church service for this new, brand new church that started here. And then you get to like have that as like the diving board that literally launches you into a conversation. It, it's not rocket science. Oh, this is what they talked about at the service. Here's what the Bible had to say about such and such. Like you can dive into it and you can share your story. And look, when we do it, God demonstrates his power through normal, everyday people like you and me. So look, Let's conclude with a story that I think encompasses and incorporates all that we've talked about, all right? So there's a picture that's gonna be up here on the screen. It's probably the most powerful baptism story that I've ever experienced, all right? So this happened at the church that I served at for about 10 years. Um, so I'm gonna call this guy C because he's actually from Iran. He worked for um, the government there. He was an engineer for one of the larger cities in Iran. Um, he and his wife and his little girl, um, they came over to the United States for his brother's wedding. He was a science research um, fellow at the uh, University of Louisville. And so he came over for his brother's wedding. He was getting married. They got a green card. They came over. And look, 
he and his family were set up well. He was an engineer, worked for the government. His wife was a dentist. They were well thought of. Up the ladder chain. And they come over to this wedding and they're just, they find themselves completely discontent with the life that they have. They have everything that they could ever want, but he's discontent. And so they've tried everything. And so they come over to the United States and it's like, okay, well, we at least have the freedom to try out like Jesus. So let's go see what he's about. And so they show up at the door of the church that I'm at. Um, they immediately connect with, this is one of the pastors that was at the church that I served with. And um, they meet. And so Pastor Dan and C and his wife and their daughter start meeting. And you know what happens? Pastor shares a story with them. They start working through the Gospel of John and just start sharing a story with them. And over time, like, C ends up giving his life to Jesus. They give up everything back in Iran. Like, they literally have cars and, like, apartments and everything that are still in their name. They gave it all up. They got another visa to stay here so that they could actually pursue Jesus more. Completely backwards from the way that this world would think. They give up everything. They have everything in this life that anybody could have thought or imagined. They have it back there. They give it up because they see Jesus. They experience Jesus because someone shared their story. In the, like, one of the most weak ways that you could, there's so many broken barrier languages that are taking place between C and Pastor Dan that's here, but he hears the gospel, he responds to the gospel, and gives his life to Jesus because of this broken relationship that they have, because of the broken, like, language that they're speaking. They can't fully comprehend or understand everything that's going on, but he's God, Christ's love has divinely intervened in C's life and he gives it up. And so look, whenever he is doing this baptism, ignore all the like lettering and stuff that's up there. I couldn't find a picture without it. So um, ignore all that. So C's about to get baptized. And y'all, uh, you can sort of get it here. It still kind of moves me to tears, this baptism story. Because what happens in the baptisms that take place is they make you say a declaration of your dependence on Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. And as he's giving this declaration of his life, he stands there and he looks up and it's like he's a soldier. It's like he's a military guy. He's standing in the water and he's been moved by Christ's love. He's been completely changed by this. And so when it comes time for him to say Jesus is Lord, y'all, he says it at the top of his lungs. He says it like he means it. Like God has like, stepped into his life and completely changed everything about him. He stands up and he says, Jesus is my Lord. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room because people know his story. They know exactly what he's given up, that God has divinely intervened in his life. He's given his life over because Christ's love has transformed him. Everything about his life, everything about his story seems backwards. But look, this stuff is supposed to slow us down to think about what God is doing in our midst because it happened by someone sharing their story where sometimes they didn't even understand each other, but he's so moved 
by what Jesus' life looks like in the Gospel of John. He gives over his life to Jesus. They are still here in the United States. They've set up, like his wife is at Boston University so she can go and get her dental. Like they're brilliant people, but they've done everything backwards because God has ruined their life in the most positive, best way possible. Like this is what Paul is getting at, all right? So look, when things don't seem to be going the way that you thought they would in your life, when you look around and you think you're not where you thought you would be, when all seems backwards in your life, it's likely the work of God in your life slowing you down to stop and consider. So look, do you want to live an unshackled free life? Then consider Christ's love. It's the only way to this free life. Do you want to see the power of God on display? Then share your story. God uses weak things of this world to display his power. It's his pattern. He uses everyday normal people like you and me to exemplify his power and see people's lives change forever. That's what he does. It's completely backwards. But it's the beauty of the gospel in full display. Let's pray.